so much of what passes for Christianity today looks strikingly similar to what are accepted cultural norms. And because of that, accountability has become a significant subject of conversation among believers. Much like folks who seek out an exercise partner or a weight loss group meeting, Christian men and women are seeking accountability groups or accountability partners, if you will, to assist them in keeping their behavior within the realm of biblical standards rather than the standards of our culture. Accountability groups can be helpful, certainly, uh, certainly can be helpful up to a point, but you can lie to an exercise partner that you have a cold and you don't really want to work out today, or uh, you can also cheat on your Weight Watchers points, and nobody at the meeting is going to ever really know it. So ultimately, it's really up to you. Ultimately, it's up to you. I have a good friend by the name of Guy Reekman. Guy is one of those fellows. He's tall. He's a handsome guy. He's extremely wealthy. Made millions and lost it, and millions and lost it. Buys his clothes on Rodale Drive in Beverly Hills. At, I can't remember the name of the shop. I don't intend to try to find out the name of the shop because you have to agree to spend $10,000 before they will serve you. I mean, that's, that's the kind of place that there are. Guy Reekman's a, a very, very interesting person. And, and after Guy had made several of his millions one time, he decided he'd just take a little break. Now, he's only in his upper 30s at this time, late 30s. And he had already made enough money he didn't have to work for the rest of his life. So he decided to sit on a beach in Malibu. And he sat there day after day just working on his tan. And, and guy, took, guy, guy told me one time, he said, you know how people will say that you get tired of that after a while? He said, you don't. It just gets, <laughs> it really, it just gets better and better. The tan just gets deeper and deeper. That's not what I wanted to hear. But he said one day he realized, he said, I'm just in my late 30s and I've got a lot more to live. I want to get, get with things. So he was, one of those days on the beach, he was reading an article about kind of getting going. And he said, well, one of the things that psychologists say is that in order to really kind of get yourself going and motivated, perhaps massive amounts of physical exercise would be helpful. So he said, okay, I'm going to get into massive amounts of physical exercise. So he decided to hire a trainer, not just any trainer. Because he said, I need to get a trainer, somebody I can be accountable to that I would be scared of, that I would be afraid to say, hey, listen, I don't feel like working out today. Somebody who can make me do it. So he interviewed a lot of people. He lives in Bel Air, which is kind of the nice part of Beverly Hills in California. So all these people kept coming to him, and they would come and interview at his home. And finally he found one guy he felt like they could make him do it, one guy that he was actually a little bit scared of. So the first day comes, and the guy's going to pick him up at his home. This is kind of an interesting trainer. Picked him up at his home. Guy had his workout stuff. This was back in the 80s. Remember the workout things you had with a little stripe down the side of them and the little Velcro things. And he thought, well, let's just we'll go have a nice workout in the morning, maybe stop off at the juice bar, have a little wheatgrass juice, get started, then maybe we'll work a few weights. He said the guy, guy rode right past all the nice gyms to a really kind of ratty part of L.A. And, and pulled the car over and said, this is where we're going. And he said, this, this has got to be a mistake. He said, no, this is where we're going. And so guy, guy gets out of the car, and he, and he walks up these creepy stairs and in this dark hallway. And as they're going up, the trainer explains that this is not where the glitterazzi work out. This is where the real hardcore weight people work out, people like Schwarzenegger at the time and some others worked out there. He got, he got up to the, to the door, and now these are his words, not mine. He said he got up to the door, and he opened it, and he was met by an animal at the door. And he said it was a woman. <laughs> 
and her name was Rachel McLeese, the bodybuilder. Maybe some of you know her. He was scared to death of her, and he said, I've never worked out so hard in my life because I was scared of all these people in there. He was, he was running three miles a day, six days a week. By the time I saw him next, he ended up doing real well. He's a very productive person again. And, and, uh, but I asked him about the accountability issue, and he said, well, you know, ultimately it was up to me because that, that, that whole intimidation thing only worked for a while. And then I had to decide that I'm going to get up and run those three miles. I had to decide I'm going to do this. And it's the same, I believe, with Christian accountability groups. You might be able, you might be able to fool an accountability partner for a while. But you can't fool the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one to whom we are all ultimately accountable. And that's the same Holy Spirit who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. That's the one that we are ultimately accountable true to. That, that particular truth is fading, I'm afraid, in many Christian circles today. The truth that we are accountable for our actions. Yes, I am accountable to you in, in some degree. But I'm ultimately accountable to God. He's got all the facts. I might could fool you for a time. Some of you are pretty sharp. It, it may not be a long time that I could fool you. But I might could fool you, but I can never fool God. None of us can. And God holds us accountable for our actions. Yes, I am accountable to people to a certain degree. I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to my wife. I'm accountable to my family. But ultimately, I'm accountable to God. All of us need to get that straight or we're never going to get anywhere in our Christian lives. And remember, we're accountable to an omniscient, om, omnipresent God. We might want to remember that. God gives us the ability and the freedom to make free will moral choices, and then he holds us accountable for the choices that we make. In our time together last week, we observed that the man and the woman in their futile attempts at self-justification try to deny what they've done, and then finally they confess their sins. This morning, we will begin to say, in this short time that we'll spend in, in Genesis this morning, we'll begin to see the ramifications of those choices that they made. For you see, God is perfectly holy. And He cannot just look the other way at sin. I wish He could. But He can't do it. It's not that He won't do it. He can't do it. If He was less than holy, maybe He could... But he is perfectly holy. He cannot just look the other way. So a price was going to have to be paid. And, and the price was so high that there's no way in this universe that the man and the woman could pay it if they ever wanted to have fellowship with God again. A price would have to be paid because God holds us accountable for that sin. If Adam and Eve would have eternal fellowship with the God who created them, God himself would have to pay the price. The man and the woman would not be able to do it. Read with me verses 14 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
Verse 17, then, Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God holds us accountable for the free will moral decisions that we make. This doesn't sound real pleasant, does it? But God set up a standard and they broke it and there were consequences to that. And that's, that's one of the things that's been lost in Christianity today. Actually, it's been lost in our whole culture. Postmodernism is a brilliant move on Satan's part. Moral relativism is a brilliant move on his part because it's, it's a shifting objective. But God's objectives are not shifting. It was very clear. Don't eat from it or you are going to surely die. They ate from it and they surely died. And this is the oracle... The or, these are the oracles that are pronounced after this event. In the final portion of this chapter, there's a pattern that arises. Perhaps you've already seen it as you've read through it. First, the man is confronted. Then the woman is confronted. Then God gives the oracle against the serpent. Then God gives the oracle against the woman. And then finally, gives, God gives the oracle against the man. So it goes man, woman, serpent, woman, man. But notice, there's no confrontation with the serpent in this passage. Remember why? Can you think about why? Why would there be no confrontation with the serpent? Well, the reason is that confrontation happened a long time ago. Back in eternity past, that confrontation happened. But in verses 14 through 15, we have an oracle against the serpent. A pronouncement of an oracle against the serpent. In verse 16, we have the oracle against the woman. And finally, in verse 17, verses 17 through 19, we have the oracle against the man. Now today, we will cover only the oracle against the serpent because it is so ripe with theological truth and theological significances that we need to spend all of our time on these two verses today. But before we do that, there are just a few things that need to be clarified, just a few points of clarification before we get into the passage itself. This will help us to understand the passage and the time that we have in it. First, and this is very important, very, very important because these passages, these words, particularly verse 16, particularly verse 16, this, these passages have been so grossly misunderstood and misapplied over the history of the church that we need to make sure that we've got these things down first. We have to understand it and interpret it before we can apply it. So many people want to skip that stage. They want to go right into the application stage without having a thorough understanding. But first of all, let me point out to you that these are not commandments to be obeyed. That's, that's not what these are. These are not commandments to be obeyed, but rather declarations of how life will now be in a post-sinning world. These are not commandments that are to be obeyed, but rather declarations or descriptions, if you will, of how life will now be. For example, when a woman is in childbirth, it is not a sin for her to do whatever she needs to do to diminish the pain of that childbirth. You see, it's not a command that women should have, women will have pain in childbirth. It's not, that's not a command, it's a description. That's the way it's going to be in a post-sinning world. But if a woman was to do her best to avoid pain in childbirth, and I don't want to ask for a raise, raising of hands today, but I would assume all of you would do that if given the opportunity, even those who did natural childbirth and so forth, you still 
like to see the pain be as, as diminished as possible. That's not a sin because these are not commandments to be followed. It's a description of how things would be the same way with a man. The, the, the text tells us we're going to work in the ground. We, we'll, uh, we'll develop the things that we'll be able to eat by the sweat of our brow. It's not a sin if a man figures out a way to work indoors in air conditioning. You see, that's, that's not that. But the, the, the fact is that work will now be toilsome. That's a fact. Now, we're going to see that all of these things, at least with regard to the oracles against the man and the woman, all these things will be able to be softened by salvation. The effects of the fall will be able to be softened by those who have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. But they're still going to be there. Childbirth is painful even for Christian women. Work is difficult sometimes even for Christian men, even for those who are walking in fellowship. So these are not commandments to be obeyed. We've got to get that. Otherwise, we will grossly misapply some of these things. These are not commandments to be obeyed, but rather declarations of how life will now be. Second, in this section, we will not only observe punishments being meted out for sin, but also the provision of relief from sin. We're going to get a glimpse of grace, and it's going to be beautiful. Third, technically, therefore, these should not be called curses. Sometimes we call this the curse against the serpent, the curse against the man, the curse against the woman. Technically, they're not curses. They're oracles. Because it includes both cursing and blessing, at least to the man and the woman. So, they, so I will call them oracles, not curses. And fourth, although the serpent was cursed, and this, the serpent's a bit different. The, cur- the serpent was cursed by God. The man and the woman were not. You didn't see anything about cursing the man and the woman specifically. In verses that pertain to them, the Lord cursed the ground. He curses the serpent and he curses the ground. But he doesn't curse the man and the woman at all. In fact, there's, there's, uh, there's no curse even mentioned with regard to the woman in the least. The, the cursing with regard to the ground comes up in the oracle against the man. But the woman is not mentioned with regard to a curse at all. And I believe that this reflects the value that the woman held in preserving the blessing that God had for the human family. This blessing would be then affected by the victory of the woman's seed over the serpent. So there's no mention of cursing at all when it comes to the woman. Now, don't get the big head about that. (laughs) There's no cursing at all. Still going to be difficult in childbirth, but it's not a curse. When we speak of a curse, we are referring to the idea of banishment from the place of blessing All of creation, not just the man and the woman and the serpent, but all of creation would now be barred, barred from the fullness of fertility and harmony. But as we'll see in just a moment, it'll be the serpent who will be the most affected. Let's look at verse 14 again. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, on the dust you shall, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. Although the serpent is not identified in Genesis chapter 3. In verses 14 through 15, we have a hint, just a hint, that there's something more to this aspect of creation than simply a reptile. There's something more there. In verse 14, we have a curse on the animal, on the reptile, as a perpetual reminder of the event. But verse 15... Verse 15 will suggest that there's some power, some power behind the serpent that would perpetuate the struggle between good and evil 
that began in the garden. There's some power behind this serpent. As the progress of Revelation unfolds, of course, we learn that the serpent is really Satan in disguise. We might say that Satan indwelt the serpent, although the text doesn't use that terminology, so I won't stay there for very long. But the God's opening statement, because you have done this, it echoes the question that God put to the woman. Remember we studied that last week. What is this you have done? So his first, his first charge when he gives the oracle against the serpent. Now this is a rhetorical question. God's not looking for an answer here. Because you've done this. It's a statement. Because you've done this. There's a clear connection. And watch this very carefully. There's a clear connection between the serpent's actions and the punishment that would be laid upon the serpent. There's a clear connection between the serpent's action and the punishment. Today we might say something like, the punishment fits the crime. The point is that God is not capricious or arbitrary as he holds his creatures accountable. There's a correspondence between the nature of the judgment and the crime committed. If you're a judge on a bench and you are charged with, let's say an individual has been found guilty by a jury of his peers, Part, part of what the judge has to do is look at, look at the, the, the parameters that, for which there's a precedent and then pronounce a sentence that is, that's fair based upon the crime that's been committed. If someone has shoplifted an item from a grocery store, perhaps a couple of pieces of bubble gum, none of us really would be con- considered a corresponding judgment if that person was then executed for that crime. It would, the punishment would not have fit the crime. But with God, the punishment always fits the crime and fits it perfectly. So when God says, because you've done this, then this is what I'm going to do to you. We need to understand that it's perfect justice. God is always perfectly just. God is never unfair. He's not unfair now. He will not be unfair in the future. He won't be unfair at the judgment seat of Christ. To the believer, and he won't be unfair. This is the key idea. He won't be unfair at the great wine throne judgment when the unbeliever stands in front of him. The punishment will fit the crime. More on that as we develop the passage. So verse 14 will describe the punishment to the reptile in question. Verse 15 will describe the punishment to the power behind the reptile, which was Satan. The punishment to the reptile is crawling on the ground and eating dust. It's interesting, as this chapter began, the serpent was described as being more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that God had created. Now the serpent would be literally the lowest among all creatures. Now, that's with all due respect to my reptile, snake-loving friends. I've never quite gotten that, but I know there's several in this room, and I love you guys, but I can't love your friends, not love your... uh, I love your little snake fellows. But, but they, they are considered to be the lowest of all creatures now. You, all know, you know who I'm talking about. Some Jewish interpreters over the history of interpretation have proposed that the serpent must have been some sort of four-legged creature before the fall. But I have to tell you, there's no compelling reason from the text to understand it that way. So, so I won't go any further with that. It's, it's speculation. Jewish interpreters over the course of history have, done, have speculated that. Josephus mentioned some of those uh, ideas in his early text in the first century, but, but we just don't know, so I won't spend much time there. Now, verse 15. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
I think the first Bible verse that I ever memorized in Sunday school was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Remember that? might have been the first verse you ever memorized as well. I hope it's at least one of them. This might not sound like it in Genesis 3.15. But Genesis 3.15 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is actually, termed by many theologians, the first mention of the gospel in the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, while it's sounding rather violent, it's also the first mention of grace in this book. Although the fall carried with it terrible consequences, terrible consequences, God provided a way out. Now notice, the man and the woman didn't provide a way out. They couldn't do it. God provided the way out. Now, he doesn't provide a way out for Satan, but he provides a way out for the man and the woman and, by extension, for their offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, this is specifically between Satan and Eve. Now, it expands, we'll see, between some offspring in a moment. But specifically, there's going to always be enmity between, as long as Eve lived, there would, be between, there would be enmity between Eve and the serpent. And notice who put it there. God put it there. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be a perpetual conflict now for the rest of Eve's life with Satan and vice versa. There's a perpetual conflict. So, but there's not only a perpetual conflict between Satan and the woman, but there will also be a perpetual conflict between the seed or the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And again, the, 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 the animosity, the enmity is at God's instigation. Because you see, Satan was instrumental in the woman's undoing. But you see who's going to be instrumental in Satan's undoing? The woman. Satan was instrumental in undoing the woman. And the woman is going to be instrumental in undoing Satan. God has a perfect sense of irony. The identity of the woman's seed is clear, I think. There's not a whole lot of discussion about that. In, in one sense, the identity of the, the seed of the woman is the human race. More specifically, in terms of the victory over Satan, it's going to be some male member of the human race. And then we find out as Scripture unfolds that that specific member of the human race that is the seed of the woman with a capital S is Jesus Christ himself, the offspring of the woman. There's going to be some confusion about that because as chapter 4 begins, we're going to see that Eve thinks that the seed who's going to be ultimately good and ultimately conquer evil is Cain. Well, it turns out that was wrong. He wasn't the promised seed it would be. Another. So the identity of the seed of the woman is fairly clear, but who is the seed of the serpent? If there's going to be this conflict, perpetual conflict for all time between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, not just between Eve and the serpent, but between her offspring as well, and we understand who the seed of the woman is, who's the seed of the serpent? <clears throat> That's a little bit more problematic, but by New Testament times, it was generally held that the serpent's seed, Zerah, in the Hebrew text, it's a very important word that we'll cover all the way through Genesis, Zerah, seed. But the serpent's seed included all who reject the Lord and oppose his kingdom. That's the seed of the serpent. All who reject the Lord and oppose his kingdom. All who choose rebellion over submission are the seed of the serpent. And I hope that doesn't describe anyone here today. 
hope nobody here today is in rebellion against God, because if you are, you're the seed of the serpent. You're not of the line of the seed of the woman. Satan, of course, is the leader of the rebellious. That's why Jesus will, will call Satan your father to the Pharisees that were rebelling against him. Satan, your daddy, who's the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. And so we have this crushing, we have this, this violence that will take place here. There's not just going to be enmity, but he shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. There, there will be a heel strike by the snake on that seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. But ultimately, Jesus will provide a head wound on the snake. Now, we need to be careful here because a snake, when, this, when a snake strikes, it can provide a lethal wound on the heel. But the idea here, here is that the, the snake will provide a wound that wounds the Messiah, that injures the Messiah, but ultimately the Messiah will provide a crushing blow on the serpent. And Mel Gibson depicted this in his film. I think the timing was off just a little bit. You remember in the first part of the Passion of the Christ, uh, there's, a, there's the agony in the garden, and then Gibson portrays the serpent's head being crushed after the agony in the garden of, of Gethsemane, but before the cross. You, you recall that. Jesus gets up and he crushes the serpent's head. It's very well done, actually. And I can see why he might have done that. In certain traditions, I can see why. Because there's such an epic struggle in the garden with Jesus himself. That's why he's sweating blood. Am I going to obey the Father? Or am I going to join the seed of the serpent and be one of the rebellious? And, and as soon as Jesus decides, Luke describes this, his forehead no longer having blood on it, and he walks out of the garden victorious. But I think the better understanding is that the crushing of the serpent's head occurred at the cross. That's when the serpent's head was finally and ultimately crushed. It is a reflection of good to submit to God. And it's an outworking of evil to reject him. From the time in the garden of the original rebellion against God, when mankind now experienced good and evil, there has been this epic struggle in the universe between good and evil. Not as separate entities. I'm not, and I'm not saying that good and evil, or rather evil does, but I'm not saying that good exists outside of God. Good is that which flows forth from God. If we want to be involved in good, we need to submit to God, recognize His Lordship over our lives. That's, that's part of a, a submission rather than a rebellion, but... But if you can think of it this way, good is associated with submission to God and who He is. Evil is associated with a rebellion against God. You see, there's been this epic struggle between good and evil ever since the fall. And it's not just a struggle between heaven and earth. This struggle is going on on earth. The struggle between good and evil is going on on earth. Really, if you've, if you've never really gotten it, that's what the Lord of the Rings is all about, in my, in my view. It's, it's about this epic struggle between good and evil and temptation, the fact that no one's above temptation. We all have to be careful. But because of the fall, there will be a perpetual struggle between good and evil, even in our own lives individually, not just corporally among human beings, not, not between one nation and another or one idea and another, but between human being to human being. And, and, and within ourselves, there's this, there's this struggle that takes place every day. Am I going to submit to God today or am I going to rebel against Him? And when I come up against a certain issue, am I going to submit and do what I know is right? Or am I going to rebel against them? This is the perpetual conflict that we find here. But ultimately, do you see, ultimately good's going to win out. Now this might not sound like John 3.16. 
But it's the first promise of the gospel. There's the first promise that there's going to be some relief from this problem. And it's going to come through the seed of the woman. It is a reflection of good to submit to God. It's an outworking of evil to reject him. There will be, as long as we live, in spite of the best efforts on man's part, there will be a perpetual conflict between good and evil. But get this. You've got to get this as I close. In the end, good is going to win. In the end, God wins. The seed of the woman who will ultimately be good, perfectly good, will conquer the seed of the serpent who is ultimately evil. And by that I mean ultimately in rebellion against God. So let me leave you now as we close with these three thoughts. Dwell on them. Submission and obedience prove victorious over rejection and rebellion. Submission and obedience prove victorious over rejection and rebellion. Good, secondly, good ultimately wins out. In this perpetual struggle, good is ultimately going to win. Good in the person of Jesus Christ will ultimately conquer evil. And finally, God is not the least bit intimidated by the rebellion of his creatures. Not the least bit. He gives us the ability and the freedom to make free will moral choices. He gives us the ability and the freedom to make free will moral choices. But then, he holds us accountable for the choices that we make. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we are blessed to have this opportunity to gather together and worship you corporately today. I do pray now that as we go, you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.